This is an AMI podcast. Hello and welcome to the Pulse on AMI Audio. I'm Chuita Gupta. The Crip Rituals exhibit is running right now at the University of Toronto Scarborough. For those of you who don't live in Toronto, don't fret because the exhibit is also available virtually. My guest today is co-curator of the exhibit, Cassandra Hartley, apart from being the co-curator, as I mentioned, is also assistant professor in the Department of Health and Society at the University of Toronto and the director of the Center for Global Disability Studies. That's a lot of, that's quite a long winded introduction. Cassandra, welcome to the program. It's really nice to have you with us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so delighted to be here. It's a great exhibit, but before we get into talking about it, could you explain to us what you mean by Crip Ritual? Sure, that's a great question, and it is kind of a mouthful of a phrase. So when we use the word Crip, that's a word that some disabled people or people with disabilities, depending on your terminology preference, have reclaimed or taken back. So as some people in the LGBTQ community like to reclaim the word queer that used to be a slur, uh, some people living with various impairments are seeking to reclaim words like disability and crip and claim it with pride. Uh, so uh, for some activists, they speak about the word crip as short for cripple as a reclaimed word uh, to help claim disability pride. In addition, uh, some scholars in disability studies as an academic discipline have coined an idea of crip theory that specifically looks at that intersection of those liberation movements, those struggles for justice that include both a queer or LGBTQ perspective and mm -hmm. a disability perspective. And so taking lessons from both of those movements uh, and combining them into a sort of way of looking at how the idea of what is normal is created in society. Who has a normal body? What is a normal way to associate with other people, to form families, and to critique those sort of normal assumptions. Uh, so the idea of CRIP references all of those ideas. Right. And what about rituals then? Does a ritual indicate something repetitive or habitual? I'm just taking a shot in the dark here, but what do you have to say about it? Yeah, that's a great way to think of it. On the one hand, a ritual is anything that is routine. It's something that we do over and over again. But on the other hand, ritual is a little bit more than a routine. It's something that has a special meaning to us, uh, to the person who's enacting this routine element, it's usually some kind of a process. So mm -hmm. it could be something like doing something that makes you feel in a certain way. So mm -hmm. social scientists, scholars, uh, they talk about rituals as being a process that allows you to move from one status in society to another status. That's a sort of very formal idea of what a ritual is. We can think of things like a wedding. You go from being two single people to being a married couple or a sort of any kind of birth ceremony or christening ceremony for a newly born child who goes from being <clears throat> a newborn to being a member of a family and a community through that ritual process. So a lot of times rituals have something to do with the spiritual, some kind of higher power, but in colloquial terms, it, meaning in everyday language, the way we talk about ritual all the time, 
I don't think most people mean that. I think most people mean something more like what you said. Uh, something like it's something I do all the time and it is meaningful to me. And we also thought that it was important that those meanings are sometimes shared by members of the same culture or mm -hmm. subculture like disability culture. So let's talk about that. How does this exhibit bring together the ideas that you've discussed about crip theory and reclaiming the word cripple and now these ideas about ritual? How do all of those things come together in this exhibit? That's a good question. So what might a crip ritual be? What might be something that is a repeated process or something we do all the time that is somehow related to disability culture or shared amongst people? Uh, we as curators, meaning the people who decide which works would be in the exhibition, we sat down and we said, what are some of the rituals that we might recognize? Some of the examples we came up with were things like a ritual for getting a new mobility device or for saying goodbye to a favorite pair of eyeglasses that you mm. don't want to part with, even though you've gotten a new pair. Those are some sort of personal uh, ways of thinking about rituals that might relate to disability. But we also thought about the disability community and the fierce tradition of advocacy and building political power. So we also wanted to recognize activism, political advocacy, and protest as a kind of crip ritual. Mm. And then... When we wrote our call for proposals and received amazing artwork from people, mostly disabled artists, some who identify as sick or deaf rather than disabled, people wrote in with their proposals and we discovered even more examples. Uh, for instance, we have a piece by Guy Kubaku, who's a fashion designer from Chicago, who does a really interesting set of uh, fashion designs that are all about designing for every single individual body mm -hmm. and this sort of ritual of adorning oneself, of making oneself stand out and feeling pride about what you're wearing. So instead of creating clothes that blend in, uh, Sky's work creates clothes that really stand out. They're sexy, uh, brightly colored, stretchy, fuzzy, textured, and the people who wear them, uh, whether they're on mobility devices or using a, a guide dog, uh, when they have the fashion show, they don't walk, but they dance. Uh, mm -hmm. So unlike a traditional fashion show, the models are part of the clothing and made to the specifications and desires of each wearer. Uh, so that to us is one important ritual of kind of flipping how the rest of the world sees you and saying, actually, look at me like this. Mm -hmm. We have so many conversations about disability fashion. We talk about mobility. We talk about assistive technology. But this is probably the first time that I'm actually talking to someone about all of those things, uh, including disability art, in terms of rituals. Perhaps this is repetitive, but just so I, I can get a sense of why it is so important to frame these conversations about disability culture in terms of ritual. What do we bring to the conversation that's new or unexplored? Great question. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. In some ways, these are all conversations that 
are already happening in the disability community. But one important thing about talking about ritual is that for a long time, the sort of normative understanding of disability is that people with disabilities are excluded or need to be actively included or invited in to things that happen in our society. Uh, and so rituals are one of those things that happen. So rather than thinking about disabled people as liminal or on the edges or outside or never fully being able to participate or return to society in the process of these rituals, the Crip Ritual Show takes the idea of ritual and looks at rituals that disability culture creates for itself. So mm -hmm. we see part of this as building a recognition of disability culture as a subculture that's thriving, that has shared practices that can be recognized by perhaps the listeners of the show. Mm -hmm. How does ritual tie into stigma? Does it help to destigmatize disability as a marginal identity? Or is there a risk, however small, that treating the disability practices in communities as rituals may lead to a degree of marginalization and stigmatization. What's the relationship there? Yeah, I think that's a good question and something that always needs to be considered. I mean, certainly we don't want to turn the idea of crip ritual into something special or saccharine or too sweet, right? Um, we don't want to create a kind of charity view of disability with this show. So I think on the one hand, there are kind of two potential audiences of this show, right? We can think about uh, audiences from the disability community who may be coming in and just be excited to see something from their own lives reflected back. Uh, and then there are also audiences, you know, and uh, my colleague and collaborator at Tangled Art and Disability Gallery, which also has part of the show in downtown Toronto, Sean Lee has said that sometimes we have to stop just teaching disability 101 to non-disabled mm -hmm. people. We don't have to rehearse the same ideas over and over again. And yet at the same time, we know that there may be non-disabled people who are showing up to a gallery show or an art exhibition, not having really thought about disability critically before, not having addressed mm -hmm. their own ableism or the stigma that they know exists or thought about how to break it down. So one of the goals of the show in that sense, I think, is to offer some of those same insights, but do it in a way that is compelling and offers a new concept for disability community members to work with. So some of the other rituals in the show that are really important are things like rituals of self-care uh, and care for others and for community members. And also, and of course, we've had lots of discussions about uh, care in the disability community, including with Leah Lakshmi, that Samara Sinha's book, Care Work, but also uh, rituals about access, providing access for one another. Mm -hmm. That's a really good point. Let me just touch on that with you, because I think for a lot of people, going to an art gallery or a museum comes with its own set of rituals. Uh, just looking back on my experience pre-COVID, uh, not very many places to sit. Uh, you're generally not a lot of uh, alternate formats. To what extent is this exhibit a way to critique some of the dominant ideas or rituals around what the ideal exhibit looks like and making some changes to, that, to those rituals for 
an audience of all abilities? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, we were really lucky that from the beginning of the plan for this exhibition, we were working with Tangled Art and Disability, a small nonprofit gallery in downtown Toronto in the 401 Richmond building, uh, right near the Queen and Spadina intersection. And that gallery has been doing shows focused on what they call disability arts for quite some time. And they've developed some really exciting tactics around making the gallery space itself more accessible. And so mm -hmm. through this kind of show, we were able to bring some of those uh, tactics and protocols for access to the gallery at the University of Toronto Scarborough as well. Uh, so part of the show is in each of the galleries. And so, for instance, uh, one very simple thing is just having somewhere to sit. And in the show, that is most cogently demonstrated by a work by artist Shannon Finnegan. And the work uh, has also been shown in Ottawa. It's literally a bright blue wooden bench. And it's called, Do You Want Us Here or Not? And on the bench, the one that's in this exhibition, although she's made several, or they've made several iterations, that bench it has written on it, uh, visiting galleries makes me tired. Sit here if you agree. And it is actually an interactive and functional artwork. So gallery visitors are invited to sit right there on the bench. Uh, and by doing so, they agree that, in fact, it's tiring to go to an art exhibition. Some other things that we've done to make it, you know, a more disability-friendly space is to, um, for folks with physical disabilities uh, or maybe who are using mobility devices or a short stature, uh, hanging artworks lower on the wall than the average uh, standard gallery height, which presumes a certain normal body height. So hanging the work a bit lower makes it a little easier for folks who are seated as they're viewing the exhibition or mm -hmm. perhaps are shorter to look at the work straight on. And mm -hmm. then in addition to that, there's a lot of really cool things that the artists have done to be able to offer an interpretation of the work in a different sensory format. So a lot of the visual works have a description that the artist has written of the work that can also be listened to. And we've really encouraged artists to take that as an invitation to experiment, uh, to have both a sort of very technical or near objective description of, of what can be seen in a visual artwork, but also to do something a bit more experimental uh, and creative, uh, creatively generative. So one of the works is actually a piece of music and sound uh, composed by the artist and his mother, who's a composer. Malcolm Corley makes these beautiful self-portraits. And then with his mother, who's a composer, they made a little sound piece uh, that includes both of their voices and some music describing the works and why Malcolm makes self-portraits. And of course, that is another kind of ritual, right? Whenever we're representing ourselves um, as people with disabilities or as deaf or sick people to the normative world, there's an opportunity to sort of reclaim how others may see you and present yourself on your own terms. I'm Joita Gupta. 
My guest today is Cassandra Hartley, co-curator of the Crypt Rituals exhibit taking place right now at the University of Toronto Scarborough. It's also available as a virtual exhibit. Cassandra is also an assistant professor in the Department of Health and Society and the director for the Center for Global Disability Studies. Cassandra, when we think about exhibits like this, um, what is the broader societal impact going beyond simply putting on an exhibit? How does this change things for real people with disabilities out in the real world? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, when we made this, all we could think is that we wanted to see it out there in the world. And that mm. in some ways we're making a collection of artworks that we wish we could have encountered. Uh, and by we, I mean myself and my co-curators who are members of a group called the Critical Design Lab run by Dr. Amy Hamray from Vanderbilt University in the U.S. But I think part of the hope is that we can start to nudge a lot of galleries into building accessibility into the budget and into their process for planning shows. So, of course, our show happened during COVID and was postponed for a year and then finally was installed in the gallery. But in that time, we realized we needed to create a virtual way to engage with the show. And that question of remote access is something, of course, that disability communities have been using for a long time, even before the pandemic. And my collaborators in the Critical Design Lab we had already all been meeting virtually for a long time, um, even before virtual life became such an important part of our daily economy. Mm -hmm. uh, but so creating a way to engage with the exhibition, even if you can't physically get to the space was really important to us. So in addition to a website where you can view photos of every work, watch videos online, um, the artists and my collaborators also created something that they called a care package, which is like a little zine or a love letter uh, to people who would love to visit a gallery but aren't able to make it in person. And it includes some specific um, offerings from different artists who participated in the show. And people who would like a copy can request one to be mailed or download one on the project website. That sounds really nice. What sort of feedback have you gotten, both about the gallery exhibit, which people can now go in and see in person, but also about the virtual exhibit, which has been going on for some time now? Thank you. Yes. You know, I really wasn't sure what kind of feedback we would end up getting. Um, I think the most touching feedback we've received in terms of the feedback that made you think, oh, <laughs> this is why we did this, came from a couple of people who have sent kind of private emails just to say, oh, like, thank you for making this exhibition. I'm someone who has recently been grappling with a new identity and starting to claim disability as something in my own life. I know there's disability advocacy out there, but I haven't really gotten involved yet. But your show really helped me find a vocabulary for talking about disability in a different way. So I think for those people who are just starting to enter the world of disability, perhaps claim disability as an identity, I think the show offered a sense of not being alone in that or could for some of them, according to the feedback that we got. 
that was really meaningful. It's been really nice also to hear from students at the University of Toronto Scarborough who are perhaps involved in various student clubs and events. And the curator at the gallery told me today that one of the most popular things has been one of the artworks that is a primer or set of suggestions for activist groups to mm -hmm. incorporate disability access into their activist activities. And so a lot of the students have actually taken a copy home with them because it has been reproduced many times and that it's sort of spot on the wall as a shelf with a bunch of pamphlets that people can take home with them. And so uh, the student groups are really excited to, you know, say, okay, like we're the students from the women's center. How can we take these protocols and implement them in terms of making our own meetings accessible as a baseline in the future? So mm -hmm. I was always really heartened to hear that, that uh, some of the artworks are speaking directly to student groups that maybe wanted to do better in terms of access, but hadn't quite figured out a way to have that conversation before. Mm -hmm. And this provides a bit of a roadmap. One of the other things that I find people really struggle with is uh, the finding the right words or saying the wrong thing. A disability language can be really fraught and people can be really attached to the kind of language that they use. Um, and by extension can get very upset when people use the wrong language. Is there an element of ritual involved in the kind of language we use to describe disability? Or does this exhibit really sort of steer clear of questions around a disability language or terminology? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, I think in some ways the exhibition does take a stand in the sense that we're not afraid to use the word disability. So that does align the exhibition with those who want to say the word, as it were, on the hashtag, right? We are not using euphemisms for the word disability but I know for a lot of folks out there, saying things like ability rather than disability is part of their self-identity. And so we're not trying to tell those people they're doing it wrong. But this is the kind of language that the Critical Design Lab uses. And so that's the language we're offering in terms of questions like identity first or person first language. I think we have artists represented in the exhibition who prefer each. Uh, mm -hmm. And so I don't know that the exhibition itself can take a really strong stand on that particular issue. Well, does that um, just, answer your question? It does. And I know, and you know, just between us, it is such a big topic that we probably don't really have enough time to delve into it. Just in the minute or so that we've got left, for those of us who are in the vicinity of the University of Toronto Scarborough, of course, they can go in and see the exhibit if you could let us know how long it's running in person. And for those of us who aren't in the vicinity or in the neighborhood, if you could let us know where we can go and look at the website virtually if we wanted to do that. Absolutely. So we are in the last days of the exhibition being installed physically in the gallery. But uh, through this Friday, you can go and visit the gallery at the University of Toronto Scarborough. Uh, Friday, April 1st will be the last day. And that is just right off the 401 on the University of Toronto Scarborough campus. You can park in the public parking metered lot and make your way into the Doris McCarthy Gallery.
There's also information about how to find that space physically on the project website, where you can also go and view uh, videos, audio interpretations, photographs of the works, and there are several sort of prompts or invitations if you've been listening along and thinking about your own prep ritual and you want to share it with us. We are working on creating some pages on the website of all the amazing feedback we have gotten back. Or feel free to tweet at us just using the hashtag CripRitual, and we'll be very happy to keep promoting anything people want to say about this project. Cassandra, thank you very much for speaking to us today. It sounds like a great project, and I'm sure uh, you will continue to do great work down the road as well. Thank you. Cassandra Hartley is the co-curator of the Crip Rituals Project, which is, of course, going to wrap up in a few days at the University of Toronto Scarborough, but is also available for virtual viewing. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you very much for joining us on the program. The technical producer for The Pulse today is Sam Robinson, who's in for Nasreen Abdul-Majid. Andy Frank is the manager for AMI-audio, and Paula Deneen is our technical supervisor. Thanks a lot for listening, and have a wonderful rest of your day. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.